Well, let me ask you a question this morning. I wonder how you would answer it. What does it mean to be an undivided worshiper? What does it mean to be an undivided worshiper? How would you describe someone who is undivided in their worship? What characteristics would they have? Well, biblically speaking, I think there's many things we could say, and I'm sure we could come up with a pretty good list. But let's listen to how Moses describes an undivided worshiper in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Here's what he says, and this is Moses preaching to the Israelites before they enter the promised land. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. David Gibson, in his very helpful book on Ecclesiastes, which I highly recommend, says the following about, about this passage and, and what it means to be an undivided worshiper. He, say, he says, There is one undivided God, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And because God is like that, then he must be approached and worshipped by an undivided person, all, all your heart all your soul, all your strength. In other words, all of you, every single bit. God is not pooled in different directions, so neither should we in our worship of him. Real faith and trust in God are not compartmentalized. He is not looking for people who can give him their strength, mending the church roof or serving in short-term missions, while their greatest loves and deepest desires are directed elsewhere. That's true. That's true. That would be divided worship, which is not real worship. And that's exactly what the preacher in our text this morning is warning me about. You see, first off, no true worship exists without faith in Christ. It all starts there. If anyone would come to the Father, we must believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. He is the only way. However, we can profess to worship Christ, but as we'll see in a moment, the way we speak and what we do reveals so much about us, especially in worship. So let's read our text together, Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. There are two characteristics here of an undivided worshiper, two points this morning in this sermon. Uh, first, the undivided worshiper is ready to listen. They're ready to listen. And second, the undivided worshiper is ready to act. So first, ready to listen. 
And in verse 1, the preacher says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Now, up until now, the preacher has been mainly cataloging his observation of, of what life is like under the sun. So, so, for example, he said things like, I turned to consider, I perceived, I have seen, I saw. But now for the first time, the preacher, he switches his tone and he uses imperatives. Guard your steps. That isn't an observation. That's a command. That's even a warning. Guard your steps, he says, when you go to the house of God. Now, in those days, of course, the house of God was the temple. That was the place of worship. But in the New Testament, for us as New Testament Christians, there is no physical temple. Instead, we are the temple of God because the Holy Spirit resides in us. So the point is that when we assemble together to worship, just like we are this morning, the preacher says, watch yourself. Pay close attention to yourself. Why? Because God is present. God is present. You're here to worship the living God. He is perfectly holy. He knows each of us inside and out. Nothing is hidden from his eyes. And the Bible says that he is a consuming fire. Yes, God loves us. That's good news. And if you believe in Christ, then yes, you are his child. But God is never to be trifled with. So the preacher says, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Fools do not know that they are doing evil. Now, that's an interesting phrase, sacrifice of fools, isn't it? What is a sacrifice of fools? Well, it could refer to a literal sacrifice that is offered thoughtlessly. There's no awareness of God, no love for God, just going through the motions. And, and certainly that kind of thing is warned against repeatedly in the Old Testament. Or it could refer to, as one commentator puts it, the, the foolish verbosity that comes from the fool's mouth. And this makes sense because look at what comes next in verse 2. Be not rash with your mouth nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. So here's the scene. A person enters the temple hardly aware that they are in the presence of God. God is not in their thoughts. They might offer a sacrifice, but it's superficial. It's not from the heart. There's no reverence. There's no awe. And we know that because, because they're not there to listen, but are instead care careless about what they say in his presence. They aren't even aware that they're sinning. This person, the preacher says, is a fool. David Gibson again, the prophets hurl invective, crying, how dare you behave like this? Ecclesiastes takes a surgeon's scalpel and quietly turns it on the well-meaning person who likes a good saying and turns up cheerfully enough to worship, but who listens only with ears half open. So contrast the fool with the person who is wise. This is the person who draws near to hear the word of God. They know that God is present, so they guard their lips because they know that what he has to say is more important than what they have to say. They fear God, so they're, so they're eager and ready to listen. After all, the preacher reminds us God is in heaven and we are on earth. The wise understand this. The point here isn't that, that God is distant. The point's not that he's aloof from his people, no. The point is that God is God. He is our creator, we are the creature. He is holy, we are sinful. He is glorious and mighty beyond all comprehension. Our glory, whatever it is, is derivative. It's passing. Our lives are but a mere breath. Isaiah 40, 12 through 17, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. 
Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Friends, there is no one like the Lord. There is no one like the Lord, no one and nothing compares to him. Therefore, the preacher says, let your words be few. Now, at this point, though, you might be thinking, but we're Christians. God is our Father in heaven. Through faith, we've been raised with Christ in the heavenly places. We're invited to come boldly into God's presence, uh, confidently, because we've been cleansed by the blood of Christ. In fact, we're commanded to pray without ceasing and cast all of our cares upon him, which might take some time and maybe a few words. So what does it mean to let our words be few? Well, I think that as believers, we should understand this warning through what Jesus says in Matthew 6. Listen to what our Lord says. This is verses 5 through 8. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. The point, the point isn't how many words we say as if there's some number in mind. No, it, the point is what's in our hearts. Are we listening to the word of God? Are we aware of who God is and, and his gracious care for us? He knows our needs before we ask him. Or do we try to manipulate him through well-crafted phrases uh, or mindless repetition or a bunch of religious-sounding words? If so, that's a sacrifice of fools and it has no place in our worship or in our lives. So the preacher concludes his point in verse 2, let your words be few, with verse 3, where he says that a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. This is a difficult phrase that commentators aren't exactly sure what it means, but the preacher seems to be saying that just how dreams are often stirred up by lots of activity in our lives, maybe, maybe overwork in our lives, but they're not real. So the fool speaks a lot of words, but they're not real. They're fruitless. There's nothing behind them. And so the point is this. Better to listen and let our words be few in God's presence than to run our mouths like a fool. To illustrate, think for a moment about the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. Jesus tells us that two men go up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And let's just stop here for a second. If you know anything about the Pharisees, you know that these guys were, they were supposed to be the cream of the crop when it came to religious devotion. I mean, to the normal person, the, the normal Jew on the street, the Pharisees were the ones who were surely the closest to God. And over on the other side, you have this tax collector who was notorious, notorious in Jewish culture because they were, one, traitors to the Roman occupancy. They worked for the Romans. And two, because they got rich by defrauding their countrymen. They could pretty much charge whatever they wanted. So here we have the quintessential model of zeal for God on the one hand, and over, over on the other hand, we have the very definition of a great sinner. 
Let's listen to what they say to God. This is what Jesus said, verses 11 through 13. He says, The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Who do you think offered the sacrifice of fools? Who feared God? Who really knew the word of God? Certainly not the Pharisee. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous, but they were not. And our Lord never minced words with them. He called them blind guides, hypocrites, a brood of vipers, and whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but inside full of rotting bones. In John 8, he told them plainly, my word finds no place in you. But the tax collector was different, wasn't he? He he stood far off. He wouldn't lift up his eyes to heaven, which meant that he guarded his steps and he let his words be few. It's evident that he had listened to the word of God because he knew that he wasn't righteous in God's sight. But he also knew that he could cry out to God for mercy because God forgives even the greatest sinners. And the tax collector, Jesus says, went down to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. That word justified means that that he was completely forgiven of his sins and counted righteous in God's sight with a righteousness, a perfection that wasn't his own, but one that came from God. And that's really important because it's the same for us today. For all who believe in Christ, God forgives their sins and counts them righteous in his sight with the same gift of righteousness. Salvation is not by works, but through faith in Christ. So Christian, let me ask you, Let me ask you, why do you come to church on Sundays? Why do you come? There's a lot of good reasons to be sure, but how about this one? To worship the Lord Jesus Christ and to be changed by his word. That that should really be the main reason that we come to church on Sundays. And, And that's why at Living Hope, preaching is such a big deal. Not at all because it matters who's delivering the sermon. It matters because God is speaking through his word. We would do well to remember 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture, it's inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The scriptures that that we hear this morning and every week are the very words of God, the very words of God. So how are we supposed to respond? We're supposed to respond by hungering and thirsting for them as if our lives depend on them because they do. Jesus says that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. They are food and drink for our souls and like food for our bodies. They are the only way to grow up into maturity for the glory of God. God is speaking in his word. Are you listening? Be wise and set your heart on listening to the word of Christ when you come into God's presence. Of course, real listening is much more than just hearing something only to to forget it soon after. It's not enough to be hearers of the word only, but we must also be doers of the word. So point two, the undivided worshiper is ready to act. Ecclesiastes 5, 4 through 7 again, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should not pay and that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice 
and destroy the work of your hands. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. In verse 4, the preacher, he's still focused on our words, but now, now he turns his attention to making vows before God. So, so what is a vow? Well, a vow in the Old Testament was a promise made to God or in the presence of God. So, uh, for example, consider Hannah. Uh, this is the prophet Samuel's mother. She wasn't able to conceive, and she was heartbroken about it. So she made a vow to the Lord. This is what she said. O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. That's a vow. Now, now you might have never said anything quite like this in your life, but the principle of paying what you vow applies any time we make a promise to God or tell him we're going to do something. You see, God takes our words very seriously because the words we use reveal our hearts. Listen to what our Lord says in Matthew 12, 36 through 37. Uh, this, this is a serious passage, and it's one that our generation almost completely ignores. And that includes way too many Christians, and that might include too many of us. Why do I say that? Because if we didn't ignore it, we'd be much more careful about what we say and about what we type. Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. Jesus isn't saying that we'll be saved by what we say. That's actually not what the word justified means here. It means that the way we speak demonstrates who we really are. In other words, good fruit comes from good trees. This is why a Christian speech should never be foolish or careless or empty. Therefore, when we make a vow or tell God we're going to do something or make a promise to him, it can't be empty. That there needs to be action because that is what God is looking for. Verse 4 again, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it. Why? Because God has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. Better, the preacher says in verse 5, than that you should not vow, than that you should vow and not pay. And verse 6 again, let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. I mean, this kind of seems like common sense, right? If you make a promise to God or in God's presence, you should follow through. But how often do we, do we rashly commit to something before the Lord, no less, and then forget about it? Or worse, make excuses. I was just emotional in the moment. I got carried away. Or I meant what I said then, but things change. Or I didn't know all I needed to know when I said that. Or did I say that? Ah, I must have misspoken. It was a mistake. David Gibson, one more time, consider the person who says, Lord, I'm in a really tight corner here, uh, but you get, if you get me out of it, I promise I'll serve you with my whole life. And then the crisis passes, and of course, he never gives God a second thought. Why? Because, well, God's probably not really there. The person was just stuck and needed something to say. It's just words. But it's not just words, is it? Do you remember the story of Joshua and the Gibeonites? Maybe, maybe you haven't heard it, and if you don't remember, remember, here's what happened. The Israelites were commanded by God to take the promised land by conquering the wicked nations who were there, and they were doing that. In fact, they had enjoyed a supernatural victory over the heavily fortified city of Jericho, 
and had also just defeated the men of Ai. But when the people of Gibeon heard about this, they were rightly terrified of the Israelites. So they hatched a plan. They took dry and crumbly bread and put on worn out clothes and went to Joshua and acted like they were foreigners from a faraway country who had been on this long journey. And guess what? The plan worked. Joshua believed them. And the reason it worked was because Joshua and the other leaders failed to seek the counsel of God. And so because they hadn't sought the Lord, the Bible says, Joshua made peace with them, the Gibeonites, and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Well, you can probably, what happened, uh, probably guess what happened next. They found out, of course, who the Gibeonites really were and that they had been deceived. So because they had been lied to, they broke their covenant with the Gibeonites and put them to death. Is that what happened? That's not what happened. Do you think that's what should have happened? Now, to be sure, Joshua and the other leaders, they completely messed this up. There was no doubt about that at all. But they made a vow to the Lord, and here's what they said. We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them, let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. Friends, Joshua knew that God was really there. What he and the other leaders had vowed in God's presence mattered. Their mistake didn't absolve them from honoring their vow. And as undivided worshipers, we must think and live in the same way. To live otherwise dishonors God and is actually dangerous. Listen again to what the preacher says, second half of verse 6. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? How many of us think in this way? How many of us would, would instead think something like, well, God doesn't really do that kind of thing anymore because, after all, we're under grace. Friends, if that's what we think, that, that's just a veiled way of saying that God isn't really there and that he doesn't see and he doesn't care. Tell that to Ananias and Sapphira, who in Acts 5 vowed to give all the proceeds from the sale of their property to the, to the church, but then lied to the apostles about it. The problem actually wasn't that they kept the proceeds. Their giving was entirely voluntary, just like all vows are. The problem was that they gave only part of the amount, but said that it was the full amount. And because they lied to the Holy Spirit, both, both of them fell down dead at the apostle Peter's feet. No, God sees and God cares. And because he loves us, he sometimes disciplines us so that we wake up and repent. That is grace. You see, the larger principle here is godly integrity. We should be people of such integrity that when we say we're going to do something, no one wonders if it's going to happen. We should never need to say things like, I swear to God, or honest, I'm telling the truth. Of course we are, because we're Christians. Our yes is yes and our no is no. Christ died to save us from all manner of falsehood, duplicity, and crookedness. And now he's at work in our lives by his Holy Spirit so that we can get rid of all those things. So knowing that he's at work in our lives, how do we apply this? Well, first off, uh, if you know that you've made promises to God that you haven't fulfilled or you've delayed fulfilling, that's the place to start. Repentance is needed. Uh, perhaps you agreed to do something for someone but haven't followed through, or, or maybe you just realize how half-hearted or untrustworthy your words can really be. That's a place to start. Maybe the Holy Spirit is bringing something to your mind right now. 
But for many of us in this room, there are some, actually, there, there are some big vows that we've made, and it would be appropriate for us to consider them and examine ourselves. So, for example, if you're married, you made vows before God to your spouse. You promised your spouse in the sight of God that you would be faithful to them always until death. You promised to love. You promised to cherish and hold fast to them no matter what, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness or in health. Yes, there is such a thing as biblical divorce because there are things that can break the marriage covenant, like unfaithfulness, for example. But outside of those things, divorce is inconceivable. And that goes for, that, the same goes for a cold, loveless marriage. That's inconceivable for those who love Christ. If you're married, you made vows. How are you doing at fulfilling those vows toward your spouse and toward God? If you're a member here at Living Hope, you made vows when you became a member. Before God, we promised to continue in our faith in Jesus Christ, to continually turn from our sins, to trust in the greatness of God's grace toward us, and to live for his glory. Additionally, we promised to love the church and this church specifically by regularly attending Sunday meetings, by pursuing biblical fellowship in a community group, by giving financially as the Lord enables, by serving others in the church, by living in unity and resolving offenses biblically, by, by following the pastors, and by proclaiming the gospel of Christ to our world. If you're a member here, you've made vows. I've made vows. So how are we doing at fulfilling those vows toward this church and toward God? If you've taken part in child dedication, you made vows to God about your kids. For example, you promised to raise your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord and in the good of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which means that you promised to actively instruct them and teach them how to live and think according to the word of God. You promised to be a godly example to your children and to pray for them, and you promised to seek out other Christians for counsel and help. Again, we've made vows. How are you doing at fulfilling those vows toward your children? and toward God. Let me ask it this way. Are we orienting our lives in such a way as to be able to act and follow through on the promises we've made to one another and in the sight of God? We made these promises in faith. Now we have to act on them by faith as well. Now, if at any point you answered something like, I'm not doing well, I've blown it, I've made promises that I haven't kept, where I've delayed, I've barely started. I, I don't even think about these things. I have good news for you. I have good news for you. We can be encouraged this morning because with the Lord, there is steadfast love. And as Psalm 130 reminds us, there is plentiful redemption. Even, even if it's just the beginning steps, you can start to fulfill what you vowed. And that's because nothing is impossible with God. It's because he loves to redeem and restore for his glory. And passages like 1 John 1, 9, they're gloriously true. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christ paid the penalty for all of our sins on the cross, all of them. That's why when we confess our sins and repent, we can be completely assured of God's forgiveness and that he is for us. More than that, Christ purchased our sanctification on the cross as well, us becoming completely like Jesus. So, so we should take heart because he's not finished working in us for his glory. His grace isn't done with us yet. 
So that means that we can be real with God about our failings, and we can expect him in his grace and mercy and in the power of the Holy Spirit to meet us where we are and act on our behalf. So let me conclude this morning where the preacher concludes in verse 7. He says, For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. Dreams here could refer to delusions of success, even daydreams, but either way, the point is similar to verse 3. An increase in dreams and many words have the same thing in common, namely, they don't express reality. They're empty and vain. But in contrast, the preacher says, there is one thing we must do, something that's not empty, something that's not vain, and that is to fear God. God is the one we must fear. And that's really the point of this entire passage. The undivided worshiper fears God when they come to worship. They're not casual with God. They're not flippant in his presence. That doesn't mean that they're afraid of God. No, they draw near to him. But there is nonetheless a deep reverence and awe. They're humbled and stand amazed at him. They desire his presence and are even undone and overwhelmed at times. They tremble at God's word, which means that they're ready to listen and obey it. They rejoice in the gospel of Christ and sincerely love him with all that they are, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Brothers and sisters, isn't this the kind of worshiper that you want to be? It is certainly the kind of worshiper that God wants us to be. So I want to end this morning where we started. At the beginning of this message, I said that all true worship starts with faith in Christ. So if you're not a Christian, thanks for being here. Thanks for spending your Sunday morning with us. But I want to invite you today to consider Christ. Whatever else is happening in your life, whatever else it is, God declares to you that your greatest need is to be forgiven of your sins and reconciled to him. Now, you might ask, what do you mean by being reconciled to God? Why why would I need that? Well, the Bible says that you are at war with God because of your sins. And that if you died today you would face God's righteous wrath forever. That's what the scriptures call hell. But the good news is that you can be saved from your sins, from their guilt and and from the condemnation of them by turning away from your sins and trusting in the death of the Lord Jesus on the cross. Christ lived a perfect life and he died in the place of sinners and he was bodily raised to save everyone who trusts in him. And if you do that, if you trust him, a, a wonderful exchange takes place. God sees your sins nailed to the cross, completely dealt with, his wrath poured out on Christ in your place, and he sees you clothed in the perfect righteousness of his son. So just like the tax collector, you can leave this place today justified and at peace with God. There's no other way to be saved There's no other way to worship God. So so I implore you, and every single Christian in this room implores you, run to Christ. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation because your life isn't guaranteed beyond this moment, so don't delay. Turn to Christ now. He promises to receive you because he saves sinners. And Jesus promises that he will never, never, never turn anyone away who comes to him. And if you're not sure how to do that or what that looks like, Please find a pastor after the service. We would love to talk with you. There'll also be folks down front to pray after the service, and and they will be happy to speak with you as well.